Welcome to this ACG New York weekly podcast. I'm Vic Magdani, Executive Director for ACG New York. This podcast, of course, is part of our suite of virtual programs and rich media that is there to imbibe our members in the wider middle market community with lots of food for thought on various topics around various industries in the middle market. And today we're concentrating on an industry that in this time of COVID-19 has been really affected. Um, you know, lots of industries, of course, have been affected by what's, by, with what's going on, retail, food and beverage, you name it. But one in particular is the energy industry that was going through its woes. And let me subordinate that down. The oil and gas world was going through a bit of a mire, and this has not helped it at all. But, um, you know, before we get into that, I, I wanted to welcome our guest for today, Jay Haber, Senior Director of Energy for Getzler Henrik. Um, someone I've known for a while, um, someone that uh, is very, very endearing. Great to talk about this topic. And uh, Jay, welcome. Nice to see you. How, how are you today, sir? Uh, excellent, Vic. Uh, trying not to get sick in Houston. That's, well, that's our... That's our general progress right now. I was going to ask, I mean, you're, you're in the, uh, the energy capital of the world, uh, a city that I know very, very well, Houston. Um, how is it faring? How are you faring? I, I, you know, what's the last three months or so been like for you? And we see numbers spiking up somewhat. So um, that can't be pleasant. No, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty okay. It's not as bad. Uh, we started late, didn't get much of it. Now you're seeing a spike down by the border, which mm -hmm. was going to be later anyway. And you've got some uh, people who like going to bars for the local Dallas and Houston spikes, but that'll pass. Yeah, uh, It's not bad at all down here. Uh, you can't do anything. You know, they're open restaurants and I'll let everybody make their own judgment on whether they want to do that. But uh, you know, you go food shopping and you exercise and then go food shopping. <laughs> so, well, I'm very fond of Houston and we've got a lot of um, private equity members, private equity contingents that are part of the ACG uh, fray and fold. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, like I said, very fond of Houston, have been going there for years, have been intertwined in the oil and gas world for a long, long while, even had an office there that I opened. But you've been, you've been in the oil patch for a long, long while, Jay. Before we get into what we wish to talk about, perhaps, perhaps you would tell us about your history to the here and now. And, and All right. I know you've had a glittering career, so do convey. I like that, glittering. That's great. The, uh, basically, I've been in the oil business over 35 years now. Uh, started my own company in 80. Uh, drilled controlled exploratories, always operated, drilled a lot of wells, probably about 180 wells as operator, drilled all along the Gulf Coast, uh, up in the panhandle of Texas. Our big claim to fame is we found the granite wash. We found a lot of oil and gas. Um, this is all pre the shale miracle, as I'll call it for the purpose of the uh, interview. But uh, we did very well, started a seismic company because we needed seismic and you couldn't get it. Like the oil patches, boom, bust, boom, bust. Well, it was a boom and you couldn't get it. Started one, built it to 
tied for third in the world and left before uh, one of the many crashes that came when the financial guys wanted to keep tripling in size with no backlog. It's an interesting approach. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I've, I've done this forever. I've watched it forever. Uh, I like to say this. I know it's trite, but I actually read and write. I'm not bound by growing up in the oil patch per se. I, I know finance. I know law. But I was, if you walk around Houston, I'm, I'm perceived as either an engineer or a geophysicist because you couldn't possibly have done what I did without being an engineer or geophysicist. So uh, I, have, I like to think I have a unique view in the sense that I understand the underbelly as opposed to just one of the niches because oil is very complicated. Um, lots of data, lots of moving parts. And this shale, we'll get to that, is uh, there'll be books written about this. I really believe that because we've gone full cycle 15 years now. And um, it, it's not pretty. And I, I, I was telling my wife before this, I was gonna start this with, oh, it was nobody's fault. And you know, things happen and black swans. And after doing four days of prep for this, I decided that's not true. There's plenty of blame to go around. It's not one specific group. It's not one evil person, but it is an interesting journey. And with your permission, uh, I had sent you an outline. We have some handouts that I sent you, but that gives you the later picture. I think we ought to talk about briefly the, the journey. Yes. Because I think people in the industry understand the journey. You, uh, you have coined, sorry, Jay, and, and, and I'm so glad we want to go back because we've seen peaks and troughs in the oil world for the, for the longest time. The world has an insatiable need for hydrocarbon, but we are now at a, a calculus point where everything's colliding and you've nicely coined it, the, the financialization of the oil patch. So I, I want to get to that crescendo of why you've called it that. But in prelude, let's rewind. You're very, very right. And, and, and if with your permission, I'm going to, I'm going to share my screen here so the viewers can see it and go through really the peaks and troughs of the oil industry since the shale gale began in, in what, back 05, 06? Right. What you have on this handout, and then I'm going to do a little bit of history after this, Please. is where we are. Let me do that if you don't mind. Yeah. Let's, let's try to do a little history and I'll, I'll go through it. Uh, the, the whole shale. Uh, miracle started in approximately 05, 2005, with the Barnett Shale, and which was discovered in early development uh, by George Mitchell, Mitchell Energy, up in the woodlands in Texas, in, in mm -hmm. Houston. Uh, the interesting wrinkle was he sold out to Devon, and Devon immediately started to apply some short laterals, horizontal wells. And of course, the results were spectacular. Now, little did anybody know that they wouldn't stay spectacular, but they did. The next wrinkle was Aubrey McClendon, who yeah. was very close to Devon, both out of Oklahoma City. And he saw this and said, oh goodness, and managed to lease every unleased acre for six, seven counties. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Well, before everybody caught on. And 
started drilling wells. And back then, the famous thing that happened was there were drilling rigs, big drilling rigs, literally right next to the airport runways at the DFW airport. And it was a sight to be seen. Uh, everybody was terrified they were going to fly into a drilling rig. But what, what, why is that important? Because Aubrey, who, who I knew very well, was friends with, may be the smartest guy that's ever been in the oil business, just a genius, figured out that this is about land and not about anything else. And he's a great showman and a great promoter. But he used, he used to take analysts out to, to, uh, on it, helicopter rides by the airport and would show them the wells from the helicopter and then wave his hand and say, see all this land that you can see from the helicopter? That's all owned by us, the mineral rights. And it's all productive. They're all proved undeveloped locations. And they, the industry here in town started calling those helicopter parts because that's not in any way, shape, or form scientifically true. But that was the, that was the start of the boom. And you started seeing, once that happened, people at that point, by the way, gas, there was a near shortage in gas in the US. And people don't realize, and I wanna make one distinction, we have a handout we'll show later. The various spikes in hydrocarbons were not intellectually driven. The gas spikes were driven by hurricanes where production was shut in massively and hot summers, cold winters. Uh, the oil was driven by an OPEC something, not by you know normal economic events. And so all the people patting themselves on the back all the years I've, I've lived in Houston, there was not an intellectual exercise. So the price would spike and everybody would run after it. Like, ants on a little sugar cube and what started then to happen is people realized that Aubrey's uh, and why is that important by the way because Aubrey now had a company that even by drilling a limited number of wells had a massive net worth at least per the market uh, the flippers emerged mm. so private equity identified this as an opportunity and started funding flippers and these were guys that would go out and buy acreage in new hot areas. You had in 06, the Bakken, 08, Eagleford, 11, the Midland Basin, and they would go out and lease virtually anything that moved and come up with a story that it was productive. And then there'd be another funded team that was in the development business who would buy it for exorbitant numbers. And that really went on all the way into 17 in the Delaware Basin. And so, that's your financialization. That was financial investors. There was very little, I promise you, very little work done. The original people that found the Bakken did a lot of work. The people that found the Eagleford did a lot of work. After that, it was all fast, fast, fast money, velocity of money. Let's get in, let's get out. So, uh, you know, and then you had this stuff being flipped to public companies who needed something. Yeah. Uh, they were not set up to do speculative acreage positions. So they would buy it from these guys. Uh, and it, it's just, it's a mini pump and dump. And that's okay if it worked, except it didn't. Um, you move on. And so then you go into East Texas. And mm -hmm. all the while, the iterations of financialization started to appear. 
You had Aubrey with the helicopter parts. You have the private equity funding guys to flip acreage. So acreage that used to sell for 100, 200, $300 an acre was now selling for 10, 20, $30,000 an acre. And when you understand that in the horizontal world, you get about 100, 110 acres a well. Yep. That's $4 million a well just for the acreage. So you wonder why things got uneconomic. And by the way, that was not distinguishing good from bad acreage, good from mediocre, tier one as it came to be known. Mm. And so while this is going on, the publics and everybody need massive amounts of capital. And I say financialization because if you go back to the 80s, just let's not go back further than that, the only capital truly was you went public and you could get some capital that way. There was very little bond money for anybody but big Exxon, Chevron. But you had, you could borrow money, you could borrow 50 cents on a dollar on your crude producing and your cash flow funded your development. Well, the whole change came with the shales because all these people needed capital. You had banks lending incredible amounts of money, incredible. They were lending on the production, on the so-called proved undeveloped PUDs. Um, and that was your, that's, you, you had a little bit of a blow up in 08, 09, but 15 started the real, that was the start of where we are today. There never was a recovery, but a massive amount of money came in. Hedge fund money, private equity money, junk bond money came in. So you, when Dodd-Frank was passed, and this is critical for the listeners, the banks were put on restriction in the oil patch. They could only lend 50% of proved developed producing, actual wells generating funds. Well, somebody had to fill the gap. They were lending in a variety of ways, 80, 90% before, and I'm not criticizing it, that they do what they wanted to do, but they were, it was not, did not work out. But more importantly, uh, when Dodd-Frank came, there, somebody needed to fill the vacuum and you have junk bonds, you have mezzanine debt people, you have, because private equity was still doing private equity. So that, that stayed flat and just kept growing and growing and growing. Uh, the biggest negative in our business, the oil business worldwide, is now dominated by the national oil companies. Yep. Saudis decide they want to cut production, they cut production. Nigerians, same thing, wherever you are. The U.S. is hundreds and hundreds of people just competing with each other. You get the famous FOMO, fear of missing out, everybody running as fast as they can, competing. Uh, PE was funding people to, believe it or not, work in a county, unheard of in the oil patch. Not the, not the general trend, a county. Uh, at one time, there was a PE firm that had 11 or 12 uh, Permian teams all competing with each other. I mean, I know, I know the one you speak of, yes. Silly. Um, but having said that, so you now have, and the biggest change, and then we're going to get to what, where we are, but the every time there was an iteration, a, another new play, more new money, everything became a financial transaction. The key to this is the oil business is in its, in its truest sense, is a five to seven year business. You decide you're gonna do something, you start buying leases, you drill some wells, you see how they go, you develop it out, that's your cycle. Forgetting pricing, because pricing 
in the old days was thought to take care of itself over time. It goes yeah. up, it goes down. On average, you make a good rate of return. Not, not anymore. So a five to seven year cycle was being jammed into a two to three year uh, private equity driven velocity of money model. And that really tipped this over because everybody had to come along for the ride. So the banks are lending egregiously high amounts of money on a cycle that would, couldn't possibly help them. They're making five-year loans on what's now become a two, three, four, four-year cycle. Um, you have junk bonds everywhere. And so you have debt stacks and people are seeing it. I'm not telling them anything they're not seeing. Every day there's a new story about a bankruptcy, three billion of debt, 500 million of assets. And the way you get there is to spend it all on acreage. We're going to get, I'll, because the science was flawed, and we need to talk about that. The fact is that in 2005, the un, nobody understood the unconventional. And I'll write here on national television, I will say, they still don't understand how this really works. If they didn't, they wouldn't be hoping for a new frack every six months. We're on generation six or seven of these fracks. And do they sometimes work a little better? Sure. But the truth is, Vic, that if you go back to, let's use the Eagleford, the early stage wells were supposed to produce 400,000 barrels. They've actually produced about 150 to 200, and that's about it. What that does is you've borrowed enough money to pay for the well. The wells are not breaking even, uh, certainly not with the acreage costs which the financial community now deems sunk costs. So, okay, we have sunk costs, we shouldn't count it anymore, but they borrowed money to do it and can't pay the money back. And that's the trap that I hope people who are listening today understand what really happened was you had people, I just had a conversation. Mm. We were talking about the massive write downs. And the guy says to me, well, Jay, but that's silly. These aren't cash write downs, who cares? I said, you're absolutely right, except they borrowed money and they still have the borrowing. So they have half the assets and all the borrowing. It's difficult. Mm. And so that's where we are. We're in, a, we're in a world now where we've got a massive amount of debt um, with not enough assets. Uh, at $35 oil, if we go back there, you could say probably 75% of the independent oil companies have no value net value. They, they're just so underwater. Even at 50, they're not above water. And that's been the mythology that people were, were talking about, about, oh, we, and I want to talk about that real fast. And then we're going to go to this components of the boom. This idea that the, uh, you, well, let's let, everywhere you're at, oh, we break even at 45 or 50. Yeah. Well, you know, everything's got a definition. What you find out when you dig is that's strictly the drilling and completion of the well. And yes, they did break even at 45.50. That didn't include the one, two, three, four million per well of acreage. It didn't include the GNA from the corporation. Wells don't drill themselves. And magically, it didn't include interest. And I can throw out now, we'll, we're going to get to it later. The silliest thing that's come out of this is the new metric is EBITDA. Yeah, which, you know, and I'll, we'll get to it on a slide we have, but the simple truth is 
EBITDA doesn't include interest. It doesn't include CapEx. It doesn't include GNA. So, and it doesn't include previous wells that were drilled that are worthless. So, I'm, he I'm, I'm hearing in all of this, Jay, and sorry to cut you off there. We, we, had, we had our gale, all these basins and terrains, some very smart people showcasing and promoting. Yep. Um, so it was really a, a bargain spree, cheap money. I remember the time 2014, 15, collateralized loan obligations, so really cheap money, mispriced risk. You've then got conventional versus unconventional and those vagaries and some creative accounting within that, that, that gets us to the here and now. And then obviously all the things that are going on worldwide with the NOCs, with the politicking and, and everything else. But yep. my mind just boggles, Jay, it really does. You, you alluded to an article that came out in Bloomberg today. Maybe we could talk about that a little. It's very timely that that came out, but I won't stop you there. So you've painted a nice no, picture. No, let's, let, let's do this. Let's go to the, 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 the screen. Yeah. So what, what are the components of the boom? And then I'm going to get into some, some depth. But you had buying sprees funded by uh, non-industry money. That's mm -hmm. very critical. So you had uh, passive investors funding people that you caretake. And I've told you before, to me, the problem that occurred here and it occurred in the real estate bubble is alignment agency, if you will. There's a huge misalignment in this industry where each of the parties that are components had their own business models, their own agendas, their own drivers, and each and every one of them worked against this ever being successful. And I'll get to that a little later, but using the sheet, you had bright buying sprees, rubber stamps on reserves, which we're going to have to get to, cheap money, yeah. mis mispriced risk, misallocation of capital. Uh, I don't think banks should be lending on, on this type of stuff at 4% interest. It's a personal opinion. This is not low risk lending. And the reserve reports have proven to be, uh, I'll say, how's this? Remarkably disappointing. Uh, along yeah. Operational cost es estimates. But what you have is you've new science. Nobody understood. And, and I keep saying that. The reason I say that is this was new. Nobody ever drilled the shales. And nobody understood how they acted. Okay, one well behaved this way. They then drilled well two, well three, well four. Oh, wait a minute. They're not just like well one. What happened? Now we have things like parent child wells child cousin wells yeah we have point death where they really don't perform well over time because of other science that's true science you have over drilling they never this was supposedly impermeable rock that contained oil well it turns out it's not and when they drill too many wells in a particular close together they all drained each other what people perceived as being eight wells is really going to be two or three as we go forward. So there's your talking about wasting money. But you had, so you had new science. I, I put on my sheet here for you the MLP fiasco. Yes. Yeah. About financialization of the oil patch. The MLPs bought up every shred of production you could buy that they could get their hands on for a model that had, was, quote, ever increasing dividends on a depleting asset. 
I'm not going to let the audience figure that out. And so what they did was they started drilling because the only way to do it was to drill puds, which was never the intention. And there's not a one of them was a decent operator because it was a secondhand business to them. And that's what did in from the biggest at Lynn all the way down the food chain. Yeah. They didn't care of the properties as well. This is not an easy business. And so you have that. And now we're left with a credibility gap where everybody's blaming everybody. Uh, poor financial projections, poor reserve reports. And, and that's really, that, that's what that sheet was meant to show. Um, there's another slide, if you will, called public EMPs outspent their cash flow. Yeah, I'll, I'll get, can I, can I just go yeah. back a little to the, to the science and the poor execution? Yeah. How much of a chalk and cheese was it between us being, and I say us, the North American oil and gas world being so very good at the conventional plays? Yep. What became unconventional? I mean, because a lot of a lot of the drivers behind pricing was, of course, the science and the new science. Yep. If we were getting it dramatically and drastically wrong, um, then my mind is flummoxed. So can you maybe go back to that and, and talk to us about it a little bit more? Sorry. So the oil business until the shale revolution, the shale yep. miracle, was a, a what they called conventional reserves. Yes. Yep. And what conventional reserves were, and I know I, let's not bore everybody with detail, but basically you had three components, you had subcomponents, but you needed a trap that somehow trapped this oil in one place. Right. You needed a source of hydrocarbons, which is these shales, which would populate a reservoir. You needed three things. So you needed a trap, a producible reservoir. You know, you talk about what's not a producible reservoir. Well, uh, shale oil, the original one where they cook it, the tar sands up in Canada, yep. hard, hard, really hard, very expensive, but a typical reservoir in the U.S. or anywhere had high porosity, high permeability, and it would produce very well. And you could actually delineate almost remarkably accurately because you knew the size of the reservoir because it was this little bump or was trapped by a fault. You knew how thick the sand was, and you could calculate because we had almost 100 years of production where people saw a field just like its same reservoir, and it recovered roughly 40%, 50% of the oil in place, which you could calculate very easily. Mm -hmm. So this is my little humor for the day. So when this started, I, I've been at this 10 years chewing on people's ankles that this is just nonsense and it just doesn't work. So you'd ask a guy how he could tell you that these wells would produce 500,000 barrels. And he says, oh, it's because of the oil in place. And remember now you're talking about a blanket shale yep. with no cutoff. So they started delineating it by sections, 640 acres. The, the, the original conventional people never did that. It was wherever the acreage took you. So they would say, well, in that section, we have, I'll make up a number, 10 million barrels of oil, and we're going to recover 40% of it or 30% of it. So I said, well, wait a minute. How do you know how much oil is in place if it's, you have no barriers? You don't know 
what's trapping it. And they said, well, it's an estimate. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. And I said, well, how do you know the recovery factor since nobody's ever drilled this before and you, know, you have no comparables? Hmm. Well, it's a guess. So we have an estimate followed by a guess. And, oh, we're going to drill eight wells, so they're each going to make, you know, 800,000 barrels based on that. Now, and that is true. I mean, I've ever, look in the camera. That yep. is it. That's how it's been done. And frankly, folks, that's how it's still done. Uh, they don't know, which is why the wells have been so disappointing. I'm going to throw you a little curve. I wasn't going to put this in the presentation. I was paid many years ago by a landowner that had no money to help him with a problem on his oil and gas leasing. And so he gave me a little bit of his royalty as payment because he couldn't afford to pay me. Yeah. It was in tier one acreage now. It was eight years before that in the Eagleford. Oh, wow. And yep. I lived through it being leased, nice payment. I lived through the very first wells, which were in 12, a little bit in 11, but December of 11, 11 and 12. And those wells were estimated by the operator, tier one, I promise everybody, that they would make 400,000 barrels each. They then came back, it changed hands, and they came back in 15. And so I had wells in 12, and then wells in 15 that were going to produce, get ready, a million barrels. New fracks, wonderful new technology. And, and here's the story. There are 15 wells, uh, 16 wells on two sections. They have produced since inception a about 170,000 barrels a well. They are now all making somewhere between 10 and 15 barrels a day. And that is the curse of the unconventional. Hmm. These things decline. They, so those wells will never pay out, not a single one of them. And the company that owns it now has literally hundreds of those wells, not just my two sections, hundreds and hundreds worth next to nothing. Uh, and they spent billions to buy it. Um, and what happened is these estimates of production are so wrong over time. Forget the initial production. Forget the IPs. That's what everybody does. Oh, this well, initial production was 3,000 barrels a day. Well, at a 90% decline, it's 300 barrels a day by the end of the year, a 70% the next year, 30, 50% the next year. Uh, another one of the, the little convenient untruths has been we go to terminal decline like you can determine in conventional by the way because at some point it flattens out and you go to three to five percent eight percent well in this case oh we're going to go to terminal decline in year three then it was year four i can show you fields my stuff is seven years old it's still not in terminal decline it's still declining 25 30 percent a year and so that's what everybody's left with the, the United States is going to be left with literally thousands of five barrel a day, 10 barrel a day wells. And that's okay. Maybe the next guy will operate them and you can make money operating them if you don't spend any new money drilling. So that's, you know, what's essentially happened to us. Yeah. While that's going on and you tell me, I'll put it to the audience. Why are the reserve reports still coming out? with these incredibly optimistic 
aspirational CUMs, EURs, estimated ultimate recoveries on these wells when factually the wells aren't doing that. And of course the answer half the time is, well, there's gonna be a new frack. Well, that hasn't worked. We're on generation seven or eight. It, it works, it makes it a little better, but it's just silly. So to, to give you one, I wanna go through some of the things we have, but you'll get a kick out of this. So the question always becomes, why hasn't this been, and I'll, I'll get to the accounting and I'll get you the, all that other stuff, but I have one interesting question. Mm. Why hasn't this been stopped, right? You would think. Well, the question is, so now you have public companies whose stock is dependent on these estimates, period. So would the little reservoir engineer sit there and revise the company's reserves down by 50%? No, he'll get fired. Uh, and in the article today on Bloomberg, everybody should have seen it. You can look for it. They've now, now people are coming out of the closet. It's fabulous. And engineers are admitting they were pressured into optimistic reserve estimates. Um, okay, will the reserve manager override his humble employee and do it? No, because he doesn't want to be fired. Will the independent auditor do it and lose all that business going forward? I doubt it. And by the way, to defend them a little, they're using company data and company costs with no independent work and then connect the dots. And by the way, for all those who've invested in oil through various things in the audience, all production in America is findable at the local railroad commission or conservation commission. Yep. So if somebody tells you how wells are doing, you can look it up yourself and get the production. But going on, so the independent auditor won't do it, that's crazy. Will the bank engineer do it after he's already approved this? Will the risk officer do that after he's already approved this? No. Now you get the invest, the Wall Street analyst who's been recommending these stocks. Is he gonna say, oh my God, they're all worth nothing? No. Will the, bank in, will the investment banking department be happy with him if he does? No. Will the investment banking department do it? Absolutely not. Uh, and management, meanwhile, is being paid for growth of reserves and the stock price. So that's the world you're living in today. I hope it's changing. I do. Um, but, you know, we can go through, if you like, there's a slide. Is, you want to follow up on anything? I, I No, I'm... I'm talk about accounting, if you'd like, and ruin everybody's day. Uh, well, we could, actually. I mean... The modeling of it all is just, again, the mind boggles. And I, I, and, I, and, I, and I know what you've just alluded to, what has been written about in, in the article in Bloomberg today, but perhaps we can talk about the, the, the easy financial modeling um, that was done and how the, the mathematics of accounting was played with. Right. Well, like all good, like all good schemes that go awry, and they do go awry, uh, is that the <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. So now you have now you now you have to find another way to prop it up. And one of the ways there's only two ways in oil and gas to prop up what you end up with. One yeah. is your barrels, and we've talked about that. 
Yeah. And it's your costs and how you account for costs. And let's go back to EBITDA. So there is a slide you have that you can replace the one that's up called Public EMPs Outspent Cash Flow. Mm -hmm. There. And I hope people will be able to read this when, when the video's done. Uh, there was an article by Deloitte yesterday, of all people, also harpooning the, the uh, unconventional wells. And they've updated this information. But for nine consecutive years, the shale industry, and that, that does not include the majors and the multi-line companies, but the shale industry had negative cash flow, free cash flow for nine consecutive years, but positive EBITDA, yeah. way EBITDA for those same years. So, and I have a comment, it's now up to, for nine years, $300 billion of negative free cash flow. Over the same period, you've had about 400 something million of equity torched into nothing. You've had, God only knows how much debt is being written off at the rate of 200 million, 300 million, 500 million of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So why is this important? Because the industry is bound and determined to, to announce proudly in their reports that our EBITDA was up 16%. Well, EBITDA does not include interest. So there's an interesting story about interest. Uh, EP Energy, right. which is one of the catastrophic companies out there, uh, was told you have to tone this down. So they towed the line and from 16 to 19 managed 800 million of free cash flow of, of EBITDA. Unfortunately, they had 800 million of interest costs those same years. It's absolutely true. You can't make it up. Can't make it up. It's just amazing. You have Ultra. Here's an interesting one. Yep. Reporting EBITDA. They were paying $1 in MCF prior to their bankruptcy. $1 in MCF when, when gas is selling for $2 uh, for interest costs. That doesn't include the exorbitant gathering they were paying, uh, the royalty they were paying, God forbid. So why is this important? And this is my comment for those who are following and thinking about investing in the stocks or in the PE or whatever it is. The simple truth is that if you have negative free cash flow, you have to, you have to make good on that somehow. So first you had those equity offerings, every overnight, every overnight, somebody else selling equity, selling equity, selling equity, which is diluting existing shareholders. The equity window closed three, four years ago. So we went to debt, junk bond this, junk bond that, senior not secured this. And so they filled it that way. Well, that window closed. And so it's been one fiasco after another, but you impair the corporation if you run negative free cash flow. I don't know how in the investment community they've been allowed to get away with it. I really don't. I, I It's mind boggling to me. Uh -huh. And now so surprised they're going bankrupt. Uh, you know, I thought I'd seen it all. Back <laughs> in 20, 2014, 140 bucks a barrel. Uh, my business yep. at the time was doing very, very well. I was riding the same wave. And then I saw the first cracks that you allude to. What was it? 15, 16, Quicksilver, Samsung, Energy yep. 21. I remember we, we spoke about that. Yep. 
Um, and then that fateful February when oil hits 27 bucks a barrel, nicely shown on your chart here uh, yep. within, within what's going on. Yep. But here we are now and, and we've had this virus that is superseded after a slowdown in new equity flows anyway into the industry. Less dry powder, of course, no public equity offerings. What now? What now, Jay? I mean, um, um, I, I'm seeing stocks just plummeting, worldwide GDP down trillions, and the oil and gas world accounts for a big chunk of that. What's to come? Okay. Uh, they're selling their children. That's one of the things that's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, because some of them, and this, this has been going on since 15, 14, are mm -hmm. selling off royalty on their production, which means they get less what they get maybe 85 or 90 percent of, of of what they used to get yeah. so they're impinging their but they get cash and it plugs the dike their people have been liquidating properties now for oh six seven years to try to get some free cash in there um but it's a it's if you go back to wall street vic it's a problem of Wall Street wanted, when, once the shale fever caught on, they wanted single basin companies. So they'd want an Eagleford company that didn't do anything else. And that's the surest thing in the oil patch, no diversification. And I'm glad you got the, uh, the oil chart up. Yeah. And this, this is the lesson for everyone. So what this shows when people look at it, are transactions. The green bar is the transactions that year in oil properties uh -huh. at how much a flowing barrel. Believe it or not, you see you had 77 transactions and you had at a certain price, certain flowing $77,000, blah, 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 blah. Most importantly, if you look at the trend of oil, you'll see it peaked and there's always a reason and people just, seem to think it's magical that the reason the reason it happened and inevitably all these spikes are the saudis yeah cutting cutting or not cutting um and if you'll notice the cycles now we've got 15 years on here the cycle four years old so if you're going to invest and you're in year three yeah maybe not go to the beach wait to wait till it corrects and then then go do it again um, so you have all that going on and you, you have that peak in, in 13, 12, I'm sorry, 11, 12, 13, 14. And it was just bombs away. Money came in like crazy. Oil was 90. And what's interesting, you'll say, oh, they must've been making a lot of money. Well, they weren't because they were spending all that money. That's when they were drilling themselves to death. Yeah. The second wave of drilling, which other than everything feeds on itself you can't explain is the 16 through through 19 more money came in the industry in that period than all the periods before and the drilling was endless because they remember they had bought all that acreage mm -hmm. in the prior five years and now they're drilling it flipping it and and the results are you know where we are today you need, by the way, you have a gas chart that's even more telling uh, if you yep. put up pink one. And what's interesting, the two spikes in, in what was really five and, and eight were hurricanes. Mm -hmm. This was not 
brilliant intellectual exercise. And I can't tell you, you can see the money in the purchase prices of property, how it follows that, then it plummets, then it goes back up. But gas has been fairly stable, you know, and, you know, it's fine. And, but the, the industry needed that, that high oil price to justify what they're doing. Can you imagine your reserves are twice as high as they're supposed to be, and they're putting a $90 a barrel on it? Um, I mean, the numbers are astronomical, even though the reserves were overstated by half. Yeah. And so uh, that's where we are. You've got accounting issues that the industry is going to have to get a hold of. Uh, that's another issue that needs to be attended to. Um, I think you're going to see the smarter people than I say there's going to be 250 total bankruptcies over the next, say, 20 and 21. Mm -hmm. uh, by all of debt in the oil patch hits in 21 and 22. Massive wall of five-year debt put on in 14, 15, 16. Uh, so you're going to have to have, a I call it a rationalization, uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And everybody says, oh, consolidation. No, you're going to right. see bankruptcies. The properties will go somewhere else. But you have good outcomes. I mean, Ultra is going to come out this time, believe it or not, as a profitable company. Last time, everybody was in a hurry, left them with too much debt because they believed the reserve estimates, by the way. and so. Uh, that won't happen again. So you'll see some good outcomes. You're going to see stuff like Sanchez, which is a catastrophe. Yeah. A catastrophe. And that's because the wells just aren't that good. I mean, put aside everything else. Do you so, know, I, um, the other day, Jay, I, uh, I had a call from someone I know very well that plays in the oil sands up in, uh, Northwest Canada. And I remember telling him a long time ago, I wouldn't touch oil sands with a barge pole, I would still always go for deep water, <laughs> GOM. Um, right. But, but as, we're, as you say, as everyone's assessing what they really have and rationalizing, mm -hmm. I, 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 what's the end? Is there a comeuppance for the industry? I mean, no one could have predicted OPEC plus dust out this black swan event after boom bust. It's unbelievable. But what, where, where, where does this take us? I know you've sort of around about but answering now, that but what how about moral hazard so the question becomes i'll put it out to the audience and yourself mm. so you uh oil companies that want to continue to get salaries and want to continue to have high stock prices are they going to get religion and live in a different way probably not is private equity going to stay away we can only pray because remember they weren't funding big deals that were accretive to America. They were doing pop-up oil companies like the Christmas store in the mall, where, you know, money, you got two years to make something out of it, or we flush you down the toilet. And that's not good. That's a high velocity of money model. So are they going to change? Um, are the reserve reports going to change? I think there's enough embarrassment now to at least admit that that's the case. But I, I, you know, you got moral hazard out there. I hope everybody goes back. There is a place for shale, believe it or not. The technology's not there yet. It really isn't across the board. Are there little pods that are sort of profitable? Yeah. When I was in the business, 
you needed you wanted three to one on your money, net, 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 net of dry holes, net of everything, yeah. 30% IRR. And now guys will show you this phenomenal shale play that's got 1.4 to one return, which by the way, when you take out all the other things is zero, which my cute term for that is it's a hobby. If you're breaking even, you're doing, it's a hobby. So uh, I, you know, I think that the spreadsheeting of America is, is a big problem, you know, spreadsheet your way to profitability. Um, and and I, I feel badly because there's a lot of people on Wall Street that believe the numbers they were being given because they are not educated, sophisticated, quote, whatever you want. They, they've been duped a little. Um, I feel bad for them. I feel bad for the limited partners who looked as an agency model or an alignment model. And it's safe to say, the private equity say, well, we're doing the best we can. We didn't know either. Okay, fine, maybe. But the simple truth is, it's, it's a tough road. It happened. It's massive. Um, they're using a program, you've heard Aries, to do the yeah. reserve. Well, that's beyond, beyond flawed. Uh, it, it just, it was never designed for unconventional. And it was designed for conventional. And in conventional, it worked just fine. But in unconventional, and the little dashboard you have, you can adjust this thing with toggle switches that you can manufacture any outcome you want. Remember, we're making up the oil in place. We're making up the recovery. <laughs> and so here's Aries pumping out these ridiculous reserve reports. It's tough. It's tough. Uh, but it's all, uh, all very akin to what happened in another industry back in 0809, Jay. Um, yeah. Well, can I want to make one comment. Yeah. The, I thought about, this wasn't originally on our, on our table, but the lifeblood of the oil industry is the reserve report, period. That's how everybody gets money to borrow. That's how the stock price gets moved. And the reserve reports are now people are coming out and admitting they might have been, let's be nice, optimistically driven and aspirational on the costs. And so if the, I call it the, the, the basement, you know, the foundation, of the industry is the reserve report. I think that's where people have to look at this, if this is gonna get better and, and be more realistic about what's really happened. We have enough data. I mean, let's talk about the Eagleford. There's yeah. no miss Eagleford. Now they still don't understand the rock, but they understand what doesn't work. And so we could get much more realistic numbers going forward and maybe it'll work, maybe frack Frack version 14 will work because it really is a science project yeah. and they really don't know why they do have found out that that stuff is a lot more communicated than they thought it was. And that's really the downfall of too many wells. So I think the, the reserve report being the, the foundation of the entire oil industry, by the way, from everything, every that we said financialization and you want more money. What do you do? The reserve report becomes very optimistic. That's your lesson of, of the financialization of the well, oil patch. There's a rabbit hole that uh, we perhaps should not go down, but I hear you. Um, <laughs> right. What is it? Well, it Frank Sorry, go I on. It'll get fixed. I believe that. I really do. I think people are becoming more knowledgeable. There's a lot of very angry investors. 
Mm. Uh, they, a lot of people want proof. How do you know this? How do you know that? Look, I was told for 10 years, I didn't understand. Okay. Well, as someone that's uh, been to the green fields in, in the Niger Delta everywhere, really, I've, I've, I've traveled it all world over. I mean, we, Frank Holmes says that Chindia, he coins them, have an insatiable need for hydrocarbon and the world needs what, what is it now, 93 million barrels? So we're not going away from it, that's for sure. But I wonder how this affects our in energy independence here in, in the country, whether it skews it somewhat, I, maybe I'm th overzealously thinking this, I don't know. Um, what's your thought? Um, well, it's interesting. Mm. If, you, if, you, if you step back, when, when the shale miracle occurred, we were producing five, six, seven million barrels, and we were importing five, six million, whatever the numbers are. Yeah. This, this, this push to produce oil at a loss. You gotta remember, there's been no profit for 10 years, no actual profit for 10 years. That's a fact. And one of the things the Saudis spoke of in their defense, was we're tired of subsidizing the Americans who aren't even making any money producing this oil, and yet it's coming to market competing with us. And so I think what, what I think you're going to see, uh, if you're going to have wells that are declining 90% and you have to drill three to make up for the one, if you're going to keep your production flat, by the way, that's a fact, you have to drill three new ones to maintain flat production. I, I'll throw it out to the audience. Get a pencil and paper out. I promise you that's right. So what, what's going to happen is there is going to be an unconventional industry. It's going to contribute. I, I think, I don't think, I think independence is not likely. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's realistic. But if, in, if we could be produced 90% of what we use, we're fine. There's enough friendly oil out there, whether it's Brazil, you know, you don't have to be held hostage and described. So if we can do that, and unconventional will be part of a portfolio, they'll get better at it. They won't overdrill it. It won't be the salve on the wound like it is now that, oh, it's going to save the day. But it's, it's going to be okay. And we're, but I think there's, you know, everybody forgets that, you know, we, we produce in our Gulf of Mexico. That's, trending down uh nat natural gas is a is a uh are you there did i lose you yep. there you go natural gas is a key that's that's part of industry independence uh, our country uh you can do a lot of things with natural gas that you do with oil oil's not going away but we don't necessarily need as much going forward uh, I do point out to the audience not to be political. If you have an electric car, you plug it in, and that is made by natural gas, your electricity, mostly. Right, of course, yes. So, yeah, we're not really solving a problem. We're moving the problem. Yes, yes. But it's okay. okay. Uh, but I think, I think we could get close enough where we're not at half of our we, – we used to import 60% of what we needed. That's over. We, we need to be better than that, yeah. and we can but financialization of an industry, and I don't want to do, I know you're dying to say this, it's the housing crisis all over. You financialized housing. 
people said, oh, we'll CDO mortgages. And they did. They took good mortgages and those were great products. And then everybody joined in, but there weren't enough good mortgages. So they manufactured mortgages. And of course, it collapsed on itself. That's not unlike what's happened here. You're manufacturing reserves that don't exist. Well, in, in, my, in, my, in my head, I'm thinking of the names of the players that are integral in all of this, but I won't say them. Um, final question, Jay, because we've come to the hour. In sure. your crystal ball, please. There's a lot yeah. of people modeling out there, but I want to hear your honest opinion of, of gas and oil. Um, Brent and WTI and, and, and the gas metrics as well with it, please. All right. All right. Let's start at the beginning. <laughs> so, natural <laughs> gas, uh, for the moment, we have an ample supply in the U.S. Yep, yep. In the world, we are floating in natural gas. Yep. There's abundance of gas, a plethora of choices, as they say, which is not bad. So, that'll keep a cap. It's very important. Um, I think, you know, one of the things about reserve reports I joke about, because you ask about the price, is they now use strip, which, right. Is the, right, which is the traded price on the Merck, which changes every day. So a reserve report is only right one day, the day it came out. And then it's wrong, of course, because the prices move up and down. So my theory is to use flat price. For those who, who are doing something out there, just use flat pricing. Pick a number you're happy with draw a line through my chart and say 50 because people don't realize the oil has spent 80% of the last 20 years at 40, $45. I mean, if you really look at the, so that's good. So let's just say, I think the economy's good. The COVID will pass. It'll take a little while, be with us through 21 in some fashion, but it'll pass. It'll get better. Uh, I have a hard time predicting and now by the way morgan stanley said 100 the other day 100 by year end i saw that yeah god bless him it's okay by the way you need a real you need real movement in the dollar you yes need, right 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 you need a collapse of the dollar to get that so let's just throw that out but but you know if i said to you i thought it would be I think we could get a double dip in the sense that once the u.s producers start opening everything back up i don't think you're going to see a lot of drilling. The rig count, by the way, just announced was uh, the lowest in 40 years, 50 years. So, uh, you know, I think you'll see if you said to somebody to model at 50 over the next five years, I'd be happy. It's going to go a little higher, a little lower. It's okay. I think that, uh, and by the way, real oil makes money at that. Yeah, eventually. of course, of course. Are yeah. you, having said that, um, are you seeing or starting to see perhaps some deals getting done? Yes. You are? Right. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. It, you just saw British Petroleum write down $17 million, billion, 17, I think. Uh, and, and they wrote down not, and that's another thing our viewers need to be careful of. This is not just because the price fell. These unconventional companies were going to go bankrupt anyway. Yeah. They were not profitable at 50. So let's not get caught up in that. Um, I think the fact is that you're going to see smart people. I would not be surprised if Exxon buys somebody. I, that would not surprise me. Chevron as well. 
Um, they want the reserves. The reserves are going to be cheap. Uh, for the record, their their little venture into the Permian, Exxon's is not is been disappointing per their own press releases. So they they're doing a little better, but not much than better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to see you're going to see a big consolidation, for lack of a better term, in the unconventionals. I don't see how most of the most of the public survive. I just don't. They're underwater with too much debt, all of them, every one of them. Um, there may be three that are not quite over debted, EOG being one, yeah. but reserves aren't much better than anybody else's, don't be confused. Uh, so I think you'll see some deals. I think you'll see marrying up. I think, I do think this, I think the high grading of the unconventional, where there is a high gradable thing, uh, is going to create some opportunity for people. The fact is that debt has to go away, so it's going to be a pre-packed bankruptcy. If you ask, I have friends at Exxon, why don't you buy somebody? They said, because we can't take all that debt. Mm -hmm. Suicide. So when it all starts to rationalize, you'll see pre-packs. I think you'll see a lot of that. I really do. In my head, I'm seeing five times, ten times EBITDA. God, I hope not. No, no, no. Um, Jay, no, look, this, no. <laughs> this has been fascinating. I really have had an enjoyable time talking to you about an industry that is just so integral in all of our lives and the woes that it's been going through. Through just unbelievable, the mind really does boggle. We we, we yeah. wait we wait and see what 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 else comes out. It's just unbelievable. It, we're going to have fun for the next two years because this is going to go for two years. Yeah. The bank is the re reconstruction. It's just a rejiggering of the whole model. And the question is, who stays in the model and who doesn't? You know, the banks, the poor banks who aren't going to get hit too badly, maybe on revolvers. But, you know, they're sitting out there, you know, uh, yep. it is. Yep. All right. Brilliant. Well, look, Jay, thank you very, very much. This has been great. I'm sure a lot of folk would probably want to, to reach out to you and, and contact you. So we'll put your, your details. And... I would be great. Yeah. I, would be, I, I, I look forward to that. Anybody wants more information or wants to ask questions, please feel free. Yeah. Well, and thank you, for the, thank you for the opportunity. No, no, my pleasure. It's been, again, to reiterate, it's been, uh, it's been very enjoyable. We'll put your details in the, in the comments uh, or in the notification below. And um, thank you to all the listeners, to all the viewers. This has been an ACG New York presentation. And we'll see you for the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jay. Thank you.